and I walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. I need you to get me your vote on November 4th. Let's get Brexit done. Now, of course, all of uh, the last two weeks on News Talk, we have been looking back at the 20 most influential moments of the first 20 years of the millennium. Um, And today we are looking back at May 2018 when the people of Ireland voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And Ailish Mulroy is a spokesperson for the pro-life campaign and joins me now on the line to discuss this. Ailish, do you believe that, that the repeal of the Eighth Amendment was one of the most influential and significant moments of the first 20 years of this millennium? Well, hi, Kira. Yeah, of course, it was very significant and momentous. And it's no surprise that it features in people's minds as one of the most significant events in recent years. Um, And it has brought far reaching changes, uh, sadly, not for the better. I don't think the removal of the constitutional protection for unborn children has made us a better or more welcoming country, but it certainly was uh, a momentous change. Um, The Eighth Amendment was a really precious thing. And I think we'll come to regret uh, its repeal as we learn more and more about how the new law operates. But uh, I think it's important to look at the positives. This was a provision that was responsible for thousands and thousands of people being alive today, some of whom are probably listening to this programme who otherwise wouldn't. And, it was also and, uh, a provision that was responsible for thousands and thousands of Irish women travelling across the Irish Sea alone and in, in circumstances where they felt shamed and criminalised. Well, look, every abortion is a tragedy. And, you know, we have so many people involved in the pro-life movement who've been through abortion. And I know many of those women personally. And I think it's important that we hear every side of, of, of their experiences. And we know many women suffer after abortion and people on both sides. We know two percent, two percent of women suffer abortion regret. So I, I, I'm not doubting what you're saying, that you, you've spoken to many of those women. And of course, their stories and their realities are entirely valid. But 98 percent of women post-abortion do not suffer regret. So that is a sort of an overstatement. Wouldn't it be? Well, not all women suffer after abortion. Many women do, but I think everything we all agree. I think every I think every woman has a right to know that, and it calls into question, you know, what information women are receiving um, when they're getting counselling at the at the moment. I mean, if you look Ailish, at the abortion it doesn't, numbers, Ailish, if ninety eight percent of people don't suffer regret and two percent do, it doesn't really cause in, into question. But but moving along, you know, it did also protect the lives of women who 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 might have felt. We look back at uh, Savita Halapanar. If we look back at cases like that. They were also tragedies. And, and I would completely disagree with you. I actually believe that the Eighth Amendment was something that controlled and regulated women's bodies in a way that was entirely inappropriate and that it was something I wanted very strongly for my 18-year-old daughter that we would have an Ireland that was tolerant and compassionate towards women in crisis pregnancies. Well, you know, um, you know, I think that, you know, if you're involved in this issue for any length of time, it's impossible not to be moved by the many stories that you hear about. And while you can reference stories, we also know that there are many painful stories on, on this side of the debate. And we and we shouldn't do anything to, to trivialise any story no. or, or any person's experience. But I have to say, you know, it, it is very important to look at what the law is actually what's actually happening now. 
And I know the the report that issued from the British that was published in the British Journal of um, Obstetrics and Gynaecology in recent weeks has brought to light some things that I think no yes voter would have anticipated when ten doctors were interviewed who are performing late term abortions under the new law here in Ireland. That makes for very grim reading, and I don't think you know can't share that gruesome detail on, on with listeners. But the fact that it's tolerated under the new law that babies can survive the abortion procedure and be left to die without receiving medical or palliative care is a humanitarian travesty and that would be shared by uh, yes voters and uh, Ailish, I have to, I, again I have to challenge you on this the only time that there is any issue around late term abortion is to do with saving the life of the mother uh, it, it, it isn't routinely performed and in fact as you and I both know uh, uh, abortion in this country is only available pre 12 weeks on demand uh, uh, to use that term that I don't like the, you know other ones are, are performed for medical reasons and, and for no other reasons well, if you look at the report that was published in the British Journal of Obstetrics in, in, in September, this came out, where 10 doctors in this country said that there are situations where a baby survives an abortion and is left to die without palliative care. There is no yes voter or I mean, the yes voters and no voters. We share a common humanity. Now, you know, I think, Kira, we can we can be over and back, but we should all agree that this is an issue of humanity and we have to find common ground in this topic and, and seek to make the legislation more humane and hold you know, this cruelty of can babies I, not being given pain can relief. I, can I I mean, ask, last week in Leinster House... Can I ask you one last question, have, just, just for time reasons? Do you foresee a time when we will ever debate these things again with a view to changing the laws in this country again? Absolutely. I'm very optimistic for the future of, of the pro-life movement and the human rights of the unborn child in Ireland. That We have just last week saw the TDs and senators, members of the Iraqis All-Party Life and Dignity Group, launch a document about fetal pain. The Animal Welfare Act, one TD said in the doll last week, requires vets to administer pain relief to animals. Yet the Minister for Health denied an amendment back in 2018 which have offered pain relief uh, to a baby being aborted in late-term abortions, which do happen under the new law. And I think we've seen during the COVID crisis how we can come together as a country. We want to protect each other's lives. We want to protect each other. I see even my own six-year-old how concerned he is for protecting his grandpas that they don't get sick. All right. It's that humanity and that community that we have to hold on, look, hold th- on to and we have look, to hold thank, the thank of you, the new legislation. Thank you for speaking to us this morning on our influential moment today, which is uh, around the, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. That is Ailish Mulroy, spokesperson for the pro-life campaign. And there will be more coverage of the abortion referendum throughout the day on News Talk as we continue to explore it. Pat Kenny will be speaking to Mara Clark, founder of the Abortion Support Network in the UK, and hear how her work has changed since the referendum. We return now to our special series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Every day we look back at a different story chosen by you, the News Talk listeners. Today I want to take you back to May the 25th, 2018, the day Irish people voted overwhelmingly to overturn the Eighth Amendment. Before that referendum, I travelled to the UK where I met a woman by the name of Mara Clark. She is the founder of the Abortion Support Network, a UK-based charity that provides support for women travelling to the UK to access safe abortions. How I came to set this up is uh, when I lived in the US, I used to do work helping low-income women access later abortions in New York City. And when I moved to England, I looked for something similar to do. And every year the Department of Health was saying 5,000 women are traveling over from Ireland and Northern Ireland. And I was thinking, well, if 5,000 are coming over, that means that there's 500 or 50 or 5 who aren't coming over because they can't afford it. 
and that's the point of the abortion support network, is um, taking the money out of the decision. So for us, when you make abortion against the law, you don't stop it. You just stop safe abortion, and you make it so that when faced with an unwanted pregnancy, women and couples with money have options, and women and couples without money have babies, or else, unfortunately, we've heard of them doing very desperate and dangerous things to self-terminate. You're doing it now in the UK for Irish women, for Northern Irish women, for women from the Isle of Man. But why did you start doing it in the very first place in New York? Well, that's not the right question, Pat. The question is why in 2009 did I have to? Why in 2015 do women in Ireland and Northern Ireland in the Isle of Man who don't have a lot of money have to call a group of strangers in England to beg for money to pay for health care? So that's always been the thing. It's not, it's not why did we set it up, it's why did we have to, and why aren't you helping? Well, that was Mara Clark then, and I wondered how her work has changed since the introduction of our new laws. And Mara is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Pat. Gosh, I sounded so young back then. <laughs> it's not five years ago, I suppose. Now, Mara, the, the question is, are you still in business? Do you need to be still in business? Uh, yes, we do, and yes, we are. Um, we have expanded. Uh, so back then, we were helping people in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the Isle of Man. Uh, since then, both Ireland and the Isle of Man have liberalized their abortion laws. Uh, Northern Ireland has in theory, but not in practice. So we have expanded to Malta, Gibraltar, and Poland. But we are still hearing from women and pregnant people in the Republic of Ireland who fall outside of the parameters of the legislation. In what way do people still need to go to the UK for an abortion, given we changed the rules in Ireland? <laughs> you did change the rules. So, which, by the way, thanks for that. Um, uh, I describe the current legislation as the girl with the curl. So when the abortion law in Ireland works, it's wonderful. And when it doesn't work, it's horrific. So most people, they can go through, they can go through the, the channels. They can go through the process whereby they either call the HSC My Options Helpline or they go to their GP and they're given uh, medical abortion pills and they work and then they're, they're done and dusted. But in there, there's, there's already some little hurdles, like the three-day waiting period, which is completely medically unnecessary. Also, the fact that very often uh, women are sent for scans, um, and the scans can take a while to get. And also, we have found some of the scanning processes to be wildly inaccurate. Um, so there's, like, delays built in, and delays are difficult when you're up against a hard deadline. Um, and the fact okay, just that, to, to clarify yep. that for our, our yep. listeners, the, there is a 12-week limit, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, many people will tell you uh, about their pregnancies that it was a little bit inexact. You know, it could be a week here, a week there. Uh, we also know at the end of a pregnancy, some people go over the 40 weeks and some people deliver prematurely. So it's not, it's a good science, but it's not an exact science. And, and you're that saying that, that some doctors say, hang on a second, you're over the 12 weeks, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's actually, it's a little even more complicated because uh, the GP-led service can only do terminations with pills up to nine weeks. And then over nine weeks, so from nine weeks one day, 
you need to be seen by a hospital. And I think at the moment there's 10 hospitals in the entire country doing terminations. So, you know, you have to make sure that you get into your, to your GP before your nine weeks. And then you need to wait three days because of the medically unnecessary three-day waiting period. So, for the, again, for the people it works for, it's terrific. But what will happen is, first of all, some people don't know they're pregnant until, they're out, until they are beyond 12 weeks. And that is just a complete fact. Um, 12 weeks is actually not a long time, especially when you're talking about 12 weeks from the first day of your last menstrual period. Can I say that on News Talk? Um, <laughs> um, and so there's, there's, there's that right there. Some people just don't know they're pregnant or they think they're pregnant, but by the time they go to the GP and they're sent to us for a scan, we've, we've basically had dozens of people needing to travel over who were 12 weeks one day, 12 weeks two days, 12 weeks three days. So that's, that's bad. Uh, now, then there's the let's people, talk numbers, yep. Amara, because yep. they will indicate to us to what extent uh, the law is actually working for some, uh, because before the pandemic and the difficulties of flying and so on, we, we are well aware of those. But looking after the law changed, how did your numbers change when the law was working in the Republic, uh, obviously for some and not for others? What are the numbers? What was the decline? Uh, we went from hearing from about 50 a month to uh, 10 to 12 a month. So that, like I said, that's an excellent decline. And that also makes perfect sense to us because the majority of abortions happen in the first 12 weeks. Uh, but there's, there's something that we want to make clear, which is that before you all started providing abortion, and again, thank you, thank you so much for that, um, we talked to clinics and looked at the numbers of how many people were traveling and at what point in pregnancy. And we estimated that there would still be about six to 800 people who still needed to travel for care. And in 2019, the UK Department of Health reported that 375 people gave Irish addresses. So based on our conservative estimates, there's between two and 400 women missing. Um, and so that's sort, of, that's sort of who we're trying to find, because these are the sort of people who have more complicated lives and would always present later in pregnancy. And we, just, we would just like to know what's, what's happened to them. I would, I would love to say that it's because everybody who needs an abortion is accessing one um, through the healthcare service, but I know that this isn't the case. Also, something I want to talk about is the fact that some people go to their GP or go to the hospital and they're given medical abortion pills and they don't work. And those people are then told to go to England if they're over 12 weeks, if going through that process puts them over the 12 weeks, despite the fact that they tried to access care in Ireland, the kind of care that they were given didn't work. Then they're told they have to fly abroad um, and pay for their own termination and travel. Okay, finally, and, and very briefly, at the question of the review due to happen in May of the law, um, what would you like to see changed? I'd like an end to the three-day wait period. I would like clarity around the, the current legislation around fetal indication, because the way uh, couples and women and pregnant people who have uh, abnormalities with the pregnancy, the way they're currently treated is appalling. Um, and there's been a big increase in people who've had to travel for those sorts of terminations. Um, 
I would also, uh, there's several groups trying to capture the experiences of people who've had uh, abortions in Ireland or who've needed to travel. So if anybody listening has access to termination, the abortion rights campaign is looking for uh, your experience through an anonymous survey. So please do that. But basically an end to the medically unnecessary three-day wait period, um, better clarification and more provision of abortion for fetal abnormalities, um, and also, I'd like to see an end to the 12-week time limit because it's so arbitrary. All right. Oh, and also, anybody, yeah. sorry, anybody who starts having a termination in Ireland should be able to finish having the termination in okay. Ireland because otherwise it's, it's state-sanctioned medical negligence. Mara Clark, founder of the Abortion Support Network in the UK. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. There'll be more coverage of the abortion referendum throughout the day on News Talk as we continue to explore the 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. But here on News Talk, as you know, we're continuing our 20 by 20 series where we're looking back at some of the uh, 20 most influential moments of the past two decades as voted by you. And today's topic was met with a lot of passion and a really heated debate back in 2018. More than two million people um, cast their vote. It was one of the highest turnouts in the history of the state. And it was, of course, the uh, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Um, what were your memories of the uh, the referendum and how important was the repeal of the 8th to you. You can let us know here today. You can get in touch with us by email at lunchtimelive at newstalk.com or you can send us a text on 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. We are joined on the line here by Deirdre who um, courageously agreed to tell her own personal story. Deirdre, thanks for being with us on Lunchtime Live today. Um, how important was the repeal of the 8th to you? Hi, Andrea. Um, yeah, it was so important to me. It was. It, I suppose I'm somebody who never thought that I would have been personally affected by the Eighth Amendment. Um, I'm a normal, ordinary mother. Um, I have three children. I have a husband, a job. I'm a completely normal, boring person, if you like. Um, but on, in, in early 2017, or sorry, late, late 2017, mm. um, I became pregnant and it was completely unplanned. My husband had been unwell at the time. Um, we, our family was complete. We didn't plan on, on having any other children. Um, and I, it, I took the decision that we couldn't continue with, with the pregnancy. I just decided that, you know, for my own mental health, for financial reasons, for, for lots of different reasons, um, we felt that there was just no way that, that this was the right thing for us. Um, and unfortunately, at the time, we felt completely trapped because, as you know, at the time, abortion was illegal in Ireland. I, I had no options, um, only to either to travel to the UK or to order pills online, which which is the option that I that I um, eventually took. Um, and 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 I had an abortion at home myself in in January, early, very early January 2018. Okay. So it was just just around the time that the referendum was announced and. Um, I suppose the timing of it all was was quite strange. I never thought I would be somebody who was affected by it. So you ordered the uh, your abortion pills online. Um, what was that whole experience like, even in in terms of finding out about all of this and the research that you did and, and looking at options, uh, Deirdre? I suppose I, I I did my research online, and you know I was able to come across forums online from women who had done this in the past and um, I had done some research on, on the drug itself and was, 
you know, confident and, and comfortable that it was safe. And I, I used an organisation called Women Help Women at the time who um, facilitated the sending of these, these pills to women like myself in Ireland who couldn't access abortion legally. Um, it was, I suppose, the most stressful part of it all was the fact that I was breaking the law, the fact that it was illegal. Um, I was comfortable with my decision. We knew that we had made the right decision. But at the time, I, I, I was nervous that something would go wrong. Um, and, and I had actually versed my husband in, in what to say should he need to take me to the hospital to, to make sure that he didn't disclose to anybody in the hospital that I had taken these pills. And that, that's just a really difficult position to be in because you can't disclose to a medical professional you know, what the actual problem is in, in case you, you're arrested, essentially. But um, thankfully, there were no complications, as there usually aren't with, with, with these pills. Um, and things went went straight forward for me. Did you reach out to anybody for help in all of this, Deirdre? Um, no. Um, my husband and I dealt with it ourselves. And I did tell my best friend at the time, who was very supportive to me, um, but no, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think this is a, a private, personal decision that women take, you know, between themselves and their family or their medical professionals. I, I don't think I, I was very lucky. I didn't need any medical attention. Um, and as I said, I was very comfortable that we had made the right decision. So I didn't feel the need to reach out to anybody. But it is obviously so important that those services are there for women who do need to reach out. Mm. This you said was all in and around the time um, that the the referendum was announced. Like when you cast your mind back, how did you feel around that time? I remember being. I, I remember a couple of things in particular. Um, I remember being quite upset at some of the things that I was hearing in the media about women like me. Um, you know, hearing some of the anti-choice campaigners talk about women like me and what what we had done. Um, like I'm a, I, I'm a nice person, you know, I'm a good person, I'm kind, I'm empathetic, I'm a loving mother. And it was very hurtful to hear some of the things that were said. But it was also very encouraging, you know, to see such a, a huge turnout and to see such a positive and emphatic yes to repealing the Eighth Amendment. It made me feel that the majority of people in Ireland were, were on my side. Um, the other thing that, that sticks out is probably a year later in, in January, um, of, of, of when, when January of last year, when the first women in Ireland were actually legally having abortions. And as things work, worked out, it was exactly a year since my experience. And I remember being quite, um, I suppose, quite emotional at, at that time. And, you know, knowing that women wouldn't have to go through what I went through, you know, doing something that was illegal at the time in order to make the best decision for them and, and their families. And I was quite relieved at that. Mm-hmm. And and I suppose, like, since the, you know, it's, it's hard to believe in many ways that it was, it was only in 2018 that the referendum took place. And in the lead up to that, and as I said at the outset, it was, you know, a very heated um, and divisive debate for people. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion and, and, uh, and debate around that on, on all forms of media too. Was that something... Did you find that difficult, Deirdre? Did you follow that during that time in the lead up? I, I, I did. I followed it almost, um, almost too much. I, I followed it because I really felt I felt that they were talking about me. Um, and as I said, I never would have thought that I would have been impacted by the Eighth Amendment. Um, but I, I did. I, I followed it hugely. And as I said, I did find some of it quite upsetting. And um, some of the things that were being said. 
about people like me. Um, I eventually decided in, in the kind of weeks leading up to the referendum, I felt so strongly about it and I was so mad and so angry that I actually contacted my local repeal group and I, I canvassed with them coming up to the referendum, which again was something I never thought that I would do. Um, but but it, it was actually quite comforting to me um, knocking at people's doors knowing and, and, and seeing the reaction that we were getting. I think some of the debate in the media at the time um, although the media has to, has to show balance, I think actually that the strong turnout in favour of repeal just shows how many people, you know, were in favour of women having choices. Right. I, just it's when you think back to the time and and I suppose how difficult it must have been for you in 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 making the decision. Um, and obviously, as you said, you you just spoke to your 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 partner or your husband about it. But one of the things that's just struck you know that has struck me that you said, Deirdre, was that decision around um, I suppose essentially breaking the law at the time and and how difficult that was for you. I think women will always have abortions, whether it's legal or not. And, you know, as long as women can get pregnant, abortions will happen. It's just whether the abortions are safe or not. And and I think that's that was the thing for me. I, I, what I was risking, OK, I was breaking the law, but it, it was also the risk that if something went wrong, I would have to then, you know, possibly out myself, if, if you like. And um, the decision itself, just just to say, I mean, we, we knew that this was the right decision for mm. us. The difficulty in it was not making the the decision, but the difficulty was knowing that we were breaking the law and knowing that if something went wrong, it would be difficult to seek help. And now, you know, like two, three years on, as we come to a close at the end of 2020, we're having this discussion today, as people know, because we've been asking listeners over the past two weeks about the the 20 most influential moments of the past 20 years. And I I think there's no doubt that, you know, this, the referendum in 2018 certainly was one of those. I should say too, Deirdre, we've a lot of messages coming into us here in the News Talk text line from people who find themselves in maybe a similar situation or have found themselves in a similar situation to you. um, And then those, um, I suppose, who, who oppose uh, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment too. But now, do, you know, when you look at it in 2020, is it a very different Ireland? In some ways, um, I, I think the repeal of the Eighth Amendment was a pivotal moment for women's rights in Ireland. I think it was so important that it happened. I think it, it, it opened the gateway for so many more things. But I actually think that we still have a long way to go when it when it comes to women's health in this country. And um, we only have to look at what's happening at the moment in, in maternity hospitals with women being dropped at the door and not allowed to have their partners when they're in labour. Um, you know, I think I think women are still in some ways seen as second class citizens. I think we have a huge way to go. And, you know, women like Vicky Phelan have spoken out so openly and bravely about their own experiences yeah. have helped. But I, I do think we have More a way to, to go. OK, all right. Well, listen, Deirdre, many thanks for joining us here on Lunchtime Live um, this afternoon and for, for sharing your story and your experience here with us on the programme. all across the station today we're looking back to 2018 and the successful uh, attempt to repeal the eighth amendment to the constitution thus legalizing abortion yet in the u.s right now due to recent changes in the supreme court uh, and other campaigning events seem to be moving in the opposite direction professor mary ziegler is the author of abortion and law in america and she joins us now on news talk good afternoon mary Hi, nice to join you uh, is it inevitable uh, that there will be a, a challenge to roe versus wade 
It, definitely. And I think at this point, it's also quite likely that that challenge will succeed. And uh, that's, I suppose, given the, 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 the nature of the makeup of the Supreme Court at the moment, what, what's the legal basis they will use? What will the, the mechanism be? Well, the most likely first step is to argue that the U.S. Constitution just doesn't say anything about abortion at all. So it wouldn't be to take the next step and kind of get the U.S. equivalent of what you had in Ireland, which would be to say there's a right to life in the U.S. Constitution. I don't think that will happen yet. It'll simply be to say that, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court was sort of making things up in 1973 when it said there was a right to abortion. Um, That argument's much more likely to succeed with the current Supreme Court. Uh, and Roe versus Wade, it, it, was it just simply about abortion or a right to privacy and bodily autonomy? It was, yeah, it was, it was about, the idea was that there was a right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution that encompassed not just abortion, but things like the right to marry. Um, same-sex marriage later was kind of put under the same umbrella, the right to use birth control for married couples and also single people, the right for parents to raise their children as they saw fit. So there's a whole sort of constellation of rights in U.S. law that abortion belonged to. And so that's one of the reasons people, I think, are watching what happens to Roe to see if that's the beginning of something much bigger in U.S. constitutional law. Uh, yeah, so th- does that mean, Mary, that if if uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down Roe versus Wade, saying that doesn't cover a, a right to privacy, then could other things be challenged? Could same-sex marriage be challenged? Yeah, I think that absolutely. Um, so we've already seen two of the court's most conservative members, uh, Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, kind of telegraphing that that's where they want to go. So uh, it, it's unclear if all the court's conservatives want to go that far. There's sort of different conservative coalitions emerging on the U.S. Supreme Court, some of which are less far to the right and I think also more concerned about political backlash um, than s- some of their further right colleagues. But I think they w- there will be a push to undo um, same-sex marriage rights too. Uh, and how, to what extent will that affect individual states? Well, it will, it will open the door. Um, if Roe is gone, it'll open the door to states um, that want to ban abortion. So states won't have to ban abortion, they'll just be allowed to. So uh, we've already seen in some southern states like Alabama and Georgia that those states would ban either probably would ban all abortions uh, at fertilization or in some cases might ban most abortions like beginning at the point that a fetal heartbeat could be detected or a fetal cardiac activity could be detected. By best estimates, it would be about half the states that would criminalize abortion if Roe were gone and the other half would um, let leave most abortions alone. Uh, is it possible for a state in this future scenario, if a state has banned abortion, that they can prevent people traveling to another state to get an abortion? It's going to be hard. I mean, I think one of the things that's likely to result from this is that women are going to probably be the ones going to prison just because not only are people going to be able to travel out of state, but they'll be able to order abortion pills on the Internet. Right. I mean, this isn't a world Mm. anymore where the only abortions are surgical. And so that means I think states are going to be given the choice of, of prosecuting women or nobody because no, no state is going to be extraditing doctors or pharmacists from states that are pro-choice to states that are pro-life um, for doing what's legal in those blue states. So Right. OK, so you don't see that because as you, you know, as I'm sure you know, that, that prior to the uh, uh, 2018 vote, there was a whole issue about the right to travel to another state even uh, for an abortion. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's already you already see hints of that happening in the U.S. and that being particularly heavy pressure on states in regions that are heavily conservative but themselves not opposed to abortion. So I live in Florida as an example, Illinois as an example, that will become um, 
in the center point of post-row conflict, because of course, if those states ban abortion, it'll get a lot harder to travel out of state for abortion. You'd be talking more about having to buy a plane ticket, which might be financially out of reach for some low-income women in the U.S. Uh, now, uh, uh, what we repealed was a, was a right to life amendment in, in, in right. the Constitution. As I understand it, after Roe v. Wade, there had there was an attempt in the U.S. to introduce something similar. Right. Yeah, there was an attempt and I think there will be an attempt too. So the the pro-life movement in Ireland and in the United States are very much, they work together, they know one another, they make the same arguments. The right to life is really an international argument. And there was an attempt to have a U.S. constitutional amendment recognizing a right to life. Um, That it's really, (laughs) the reason that didn't work in sort of short is that it's virtually impossible to amend the U.S. Constitution, period, um, to say anything. I mean, if you wanted to amend the U.S. Constitution to say Saturday was better than Monday, that would be hard, too. It just Mm. doesn't happen anymore. Um, And, and of course, popular opinion in the U.S. was never really in favor of a strong right to life either. Um, Opinion in the U.S., if you dig into polling, looks sort of like people want abortion to be legal in the first 12 weeks and maybe not after that, but certainly not in favor of uh, of a ban from fertilization. Mm. Uh, But uh, to end the U.S. Constitution, would that that require a, a plebiscite of everyone? Uh, it requires a supermajority vote in Congress, so a two-thirds vote in Congress, and then a similar supermajority support in the states, which is why um, it's it's not a plebiscite. It, it actually requires state legislators and members of Congress to be on board. And uh, if anybody who follows U.S. politics knows that the U.S. Congress can't, you know, even consistently pass a budget, <laughs> so for them to have a supermajority vote in favor of a right to life or a right to choose or anything like that is highly unlikely. Right. Okay. So, but the. The thing is, I suppose this law keeps changing and it's pivoting around the right to privacy, which in a sense might have nothing to do with abortion one way or the other. Right. That's the that's the argument. And there, there's been one of the criticisms of Roe v. Wade in the years since was that uh, the right to abortion really is more about equality uh, for women and pregnant people than it really is about autonomy, which made Roe v. Wade more vulnerable to attack because even people who are sympathetic to the idea of legal abortion were skeptical of of the foundations of Roe v. Wade, which has sort of opened the door to some of these attacks you see in state legislators and in the Supreme Court. Uh, Given, though, uh, the inevitability of uh, of an attempt to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, how do you think realistic and has been spoken about that the incoming president might decide to, you know, chuck in a few more judges there and balance things up? Yeah, I mean, much will depend in the U.S. on what happens in the Senate races in January. Um, At the moment, I think everybody's best guess is that the Republican Party will retain control of one house of the U.S. Congress, which would prevent uh, President-elect Biden from stacking the Supreme Court with people who wouldn't overturn Roe. But of course, that's only for now, right? I mean, every couple of years, new people come in to the Congress. So um, I think that's hanging over the U.S. Supreme Court, right? I, I think the fact that you could have a political backlash and that voters would put in politicians who would want to restore abortion rights, that possibility has to be on the minds of the justices as they try to figure out what to do. Though at the same time, it, it sounds like an arms race, though, that, you know, if Biden was in a position to uh, put in more judges and then, you know, and then in four or eight years time, uh, a Republican incumbent comes in and adds in even more right. justices, it becomes increasingly ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of court packing. There's a group of uh, professors in the U.S. that are fans of uh, term limits. So because mm. there's it just increasingly it gets increasingly ridiculous that you have Supreme Court justices there, you know, literally for 
40 years at times. And so even if you assume that people get the justices they vote for, then those justices stay long, long after voters have given up on those values, right? So, but I think you're right that a court packing would just kind of lead to a downward spiral where, you know, by the end of it, the U.S. Supreme Court would be, you know, the size of, you know, several football teams, right? It would not be... (laughs) <laughs> no longer be a court in any kind of recognizable sense. Uh, Mary, thank you very much for speaking with us today. That was Mary Ziegler there, a law professor at Florida State University and the author of Abortion and the Law in America, Road versus Wade to the Present. You are listening to The Moncrief Show.